you're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. Should parents be allowed to brainwash their kids? Most people would say no, but where is the line between instilling values and brainwashing? A Canadian judge ruled that a Christian dad who wants gays executed isn't allowed to brainwash his kid. We're gonna take a look at the line between constructive beliefs and destructive beliefs. Faith Leaks, a WikiLeaks for Religion, leaked 74 Jehovah's Witness convention videos to the public. And of course, Jehovah's Witnesses sued Faith Leaks after the release. They claimed copyright infringement. We're going to take a closer look at the case and see where it stands as of now. Kenneth Copeland, aka Satan Incarnate, blows the wind of God at COVID-19, thus destroying it forever. Well, this was on April 5th. It's still here, so... I guess God didn't hear him, and he apparently didn't hear Copeland's declaration any of the three times he's tried this. Let's take a look at Copeland's claims and see if they have any legitimacy. Before we take a look at all that, let's listen to some voicemails. Don't forget, if you want to call in and leave a voicemail, the number is 1-800-701-8573. Hey, this is Owen. If you're comfortable, leave your first name and state at the sound of the tiny truck backing up. Hey, Owen. I've been talking to some Mormon missionaries, and I'd like to know some evidence that would convince a scientist that Mormonism is wrong. Interesting question. So, I imagine you probably haven't heard of the CES letter before. A lot of the people listening to this may not have, so we're going to cover a little bit of the CES letter today. Let me explain what the CES letter is. So the CES letter was written by somebody named Jeremy Runnels. The CES is the church educational system. That's what it is. It's the Church Educational System. That's what it stands for. And Jeremy Runnels basically wrote this this letter to the Church Educational System. And it's called the CES Letter. It is addressing all of the problems with Mormonism. Now, over the years, Jeremy Runnels has expanded upon the CES Letter, uh, added pages to it, and added questions and things like that. It's extremely fascinating. It's got a bunch of different sections. The Book of Mormon, problems with the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon's translation, first vision, the Book of Abraham, polygamy and polyandry, prophets, kinderhook plates and translator claims, testimony and spiritual witness, priesthood restoration, witnesses, temple and Freemasonry, science, other concerns, conclusion, sources and notes, and the epilogue. I figured we'd just take like a look at just basically one section for the moment and maybe two and see what they have to say. Uh, Let's look at the book of Abraham. Let me give you guys a little bit of kind of a, a, an explanation of what the book of Abraham is. Joseph Smith was basically living on a commune long, long ago, had a bunch of people around him, bunch of his followers basically. And there was this traveling salesman who had papyrus and hieroglyphics on it, like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. So Joseph Smith was like, this is awesome. I would love to have these. So he gets his congregation together and he says, let's gather up as much money as we can get together and buy these hieroglyphics and I will translate them because it's another book in our holy book. It's basically, he was saying that it's another holy book 
that has yet to be discovered. So all of his people on his little commune there got together, gathered all their money together, gave the guy like a ton of money. I don't even remember how much it was. It was an obnoxious amount of money. And he paid it and got them and did what he called translated the books. He translated it into what he called the Book of Abraham. And it tells this whole big, long story. This all really did happen. So the question is, like, this isn't made up as in, you know, he claims he found some gold plates in the back of his yard, but nobody's allowed to see the plates, blah, blah, blah. This actually did happen. A traveling salesman really did bring this stuff to him. So he, quote unquote, translates the book of Abraham. Then he donated the, the hieroglyphics to a museum and the museum burned down in the late 1800s. So we lost the hieroglyphics. We didn't know what it said, but come to find out, we found those hieroglyphics in the back of another museum not long ago. We know that it's the, the hieroglyphics that Joseph Smith had because uh, he was basically releasing the quote-unquote translations in his newspaper, like his newsletter that he sent around to everybody. And he drew facsimiles of what the hieroglyphics looked like. And we compared the facsimiles to the actual real hieroglyphics, and they match up. The Mormon church even acknowledges, yeah, these were the originals. Now the question is... Did they really say what Joseph Smith claimed they said? Was it actually the book of Abraham? Or was he completely making it up? The answer is, he was completely making it up. It was completely fabricated. And the Mormon church, having acknowledged that this was, in fact, what Joseph Smith was quote-unquote translating from, had to come up with an explanation for why our Egyptologists have a different translation of what these things said than Joseph Smith. And their explanation for why Joseph Smith was so far off from what it actually said is because he wasn't translating exactly. He was interpreting. So, you know, we know the language, but God had Joseph Smith basically interpret a completely different message from this. It's a completely absurd story. I don't know how anybody could possibly believe this if they weren't already brainwashed into it. But anyway, the point here is the CES letter has a whole section on the book of Abraham and the problems with it. So I figured we'd just give the book of Abraham a little read and see what it says. Before I continue, though, let me just address the the voicemail question. Let me just play the voicemail one more time. Hey, Owen, I've been talking to some Mormon missionaries, and I'd like to know some evidence that would convince a scientist that Mormonism is wrong. Okay, um, proving a negative is not really easy to do. Uh, nearly impossible because you can say, look, we have evidence right here that you're wrong, and they can just kind of change the story. They can just twist it around a little bit and move it around and say, well, there, there's your explanation they just keep moving the goalpost. We have factual claims that the Mormon church makes, and we can prove those factual claims wrong. But every time we do, which we have, read the CES letter, 
the Mormon church moves the goalpost or changes it and says, oh, it was all based on a misunderstanding. You just misunderstood what we were saying, or we misunderstood what Joseph Smith was saying, or some other thing like that. So when you ask a question like that, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, but I will give you some information on and why the Mormon church is incorrect about some things. This is a pretty long book. I think it's 114 pages long, so... Anyway, all that being said, let's just take a quick glance at the Book of Abraham. None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Abraham, though there is not unanimity, even among non-Mormon scholars, about the proper interpretation of the vignettes on these fragments. Scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as parts of standard funerary texts that were deposited with mummified bodies. These fragments date to between the 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, long after Abraham lived. So here's the first one. Originally, Joseph claimed that this record was written by Abraham by his own hand upon papyrus, a claim still prominent in the heading of the Book of Abraham. This claim could not be evaluated for decades as many thought the papyri were lost in a fire. The original papyrus, or papyrus, maybe it's papyrus, the original papyrus Joseph translated has since been found, and as stated in the church's July 2014 translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham essay, scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as parts of standard funerary texts that date to between the 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, long after Abraham lived. We know this is the papyrus that Joseph Smith used for translation because the hieroglyphics match in chronological order to the hieroglyphics in Joseph's Kirtland Egyptian papers, which contains his grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Additionally, the papyrus were pasted onto paper which have drawings of a temple and maps of the Kirtland, Ohio area on the back, and they were accompanied by an affidavit by Emma Smith verifying that they had been in the possession of Joseph Smith. So right here we have an issue. Joseph Smith claimed that it was recorded by Abraham, by his own hand, upon papyrus. It wasn't. It just straight up was not. We know this for a fact. And the Mormon church has basically admitted to that at this point. Explain it. Explain that to us. We need to understand this. This is a massive, major flaw in your theology. Not only is it simply not true, so we don't just want to throw the book out. We can't just throw that one book out. Fine, that, that's completely made up. That's fabricated. I'm sure we can all agree on that now. But you can't just throw that book out because you know Joseph Smith is a con man now. The guy lied. We know the guy lied about this. What else did he lie about? That's a serious question that needs to be answered here. Let's look at the second one. Egyptologists have also since translated the source material for the Book of Abraham and found it to be nothing more than a common pagan Egyptian funerary text for a deceased man named Hor around 1st century CE. In other words, it was a common breathing permit that the Egyptians buried with their dead. It has nothing to do with Abraham or anything Joseph claimed in his translation for the Book of Abraham. The church admits this in its essay. The graphic below shows the rediscovered papyri, or papyri, 
placed on top of facsimile one. The red circles denote the filled-in sections of facsimile one that respected modern Egyptologists say is nonsense. This is extremely fascinating. If you're listening to the podcast, I'll try to describe it as best I can. If you're looking at it on the YouTube channel, you'll see that they basically have missing pieces. It's like it it, it kind of disintegrated in parts and, and, and some of it fell off. So there was a drawing of a picture of a couple of people and a bird and things like that. And parts of the drawing fell apart. Well, we have the full and complete drawing we know what it actually originally looked like but we have what joseph smith added to it apparently it says in contrast with the canonized version of facsimile one the following image is what facsimile one is really supposed to look like based on egyptology and the same scene discovered elsewhere in egypt Uh, the head is completely different on this beast creature the head's different on these birds One of the birds doesn't even exist. He replaced the bird with a knife. It's completely different from what we know it to be. So Joseph Smith kind of added in what was missing and got it straight up wrong. He got it wrong. He got it incorrect. He lied. He claimed that this was the original and God told him it was. And here we are. It's just incorrect. We know that for a fact. How do you answer that? How do you grapple with that that is my question joseph smith's interpretation of the book of abraham quote unquote as compared to modern egyptological interpretation joseph smith's interpretation the angel of the lord the modern interpretation from experts the spirit or ba of horror the deceased fellow so joseph smith translated it as the angel of the lord Modern Egyptologists translated it as the spirit of horror, the deceased fellow. Joseph Smith translated something as Abraham fastened upon an altar. Modern Egyptologists translated it as the deceased. His name was Hor. Are you guys seeing the problems here with this? I, I'm sure you're all beginning to see a trend here, right? Joseph Smith just completely fabricated this. He just made this shit up. Joseph Smith did not understand hieroglyphics. Dude could barely read English. He could not speak another language, let alone read these drawings and understand what they were talking about. God was supposed to have been giving him this information, translating it for him. So what happened? Where was the hang-up? Was Joseph Smith not actually talking to God? Where was the hang-up? Can you guys hear the uh, thunder? Just take a sippy mix sip or tin of my coffee here, wait for it to clear away. Joseph Smith translates it as the idolatrous priest of Elkanah. Modern Egyptologists translate it as Anubis. See the original image. This figure was originally portrayed with the head of a jackal. So he completely changed and fabricated this, like entirely. He just made this shit up, whole cloth. I don't know how anybody can take Mormonism seriously, honestly. It is one of the most ridiculous belief systems, like not necessarily one of the most harmful, although it is extremely harmful in my opinion, but it's one of the most ridiculous. Next to Scientology, I would say in terms of absolutely most ridiculous belief systems that are thriving today, I would say Scientology, then Mormonism. 
I hesitate to list Jehovah's Witnesses as a third because there are still crazier belief systems out there than Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, Heaven's Gate was out there, but they're not really thriving today. They're not really growing or anything. Kind of a dead religion at this point. There is one more section I wanted to look at. Um, I wanted to take a look at the DNA analysis section. The Mormon Church made the claim originally, Joseph Smith made the claim originally that Native Americans were descendants of Israelites who came over to America by boat. And there's a really interesting story about how they got here. They used stones that Jesus touched and put them on the front of their boats to guide them at night because when Jesus touched them, it made them glow. So they saw at night to sail by the light of these stones that Jesus touched. Anyway, point here is they claimed that Native Americans are the descendants of Israelites who, who came to America. Um, that is an objectively verifiable claim, right? We have DNA testing. We can test Native American DNA and see are any of them, any of them, descendants of Israelites? Are there any tribes at all that descended from, is from Israel? So let's read this section here and see what it says. DNA analysis has concluded that Native American Indians do not originate from the Middle East or from Israelites, but rather from Asia. Why did the church change the following section of the introduction page in the 2006 edition Book of Mormon shortly after the DNA results were released? It used to say the Lamanites, and they are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Now it says the Lamanites, and they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. That's called backpedaling. The church conceded in its January 2014 Book of Mormon and DNA Studies essay that the majority of Native Americans carry largely Asian DNA. The church, through this essay, makes a major shift in narrative from its past dominant narrative and claims of the origins of the Native American Indians. Here's another one. Anachronisms. Horses, cattle, oxen, sheep, swine, goat, elephants, wheels, chariots, wheat, silk, steel, and iron did not exist in pre-Columbian America during the Book of Mormon times. Why are these things mentioned in the Book of Mormon as being made available in the Americas between 2200 BC and 421 AD? Unofficial apologists claim victories in some of these items, but closer inspection reveals significant problems. It's been documented that apologists have manipulated wording so that steel is not steel, sheep become never domesticated bighorn sheep, Horses become tapers, etc. The point behind this is that the Mormon church is completely, verifiably full of shit. We know for a fact that the things that they're claiming right now, there are some things that the Mormon church claims right now that are objectively false. And there are things in the past that they've claimed that are objectively false that they've flipped on. We need answers to these questions, and there are 114 pages of the questions, so get to work, Mormons. When we come back, we're going to take a look at an article about a judge ruling that a parent can't brainwash their kid with extremist propaganda. So give us 30 seconds, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com.
The first article I wanted to take a look at is by the friendly atheist Hemant Mehta. The name of the article is Judge Christian Dad Who Says God Wants Gays Executed Can't Brainwash His Kids. This is fairly groundbreaking, so let's give this article a read and see what it says. Should parents be allowed to instill their religious values in their kids? I would think most of us would say yes. What about religious values that we would rightly call hate speech? What if the religion teaches that gay people deserve to be murdered? That was the issue at the center of a now-resolved custody battle in British Columbia. The unnamed father, who goes by the initials JKH in court documents, was radicalized in 2015 after watching YouTube videos from independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers Stephen Anderson and Roger Jimenez. Okay, of course. Of course this is about the NIFB. They aren't IFB. They aren't independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers. They're NIFB now. Steven Anderson and Roger Jimenez. I really need to cover them deeper on my main channel at some point because I haven't covered them in a while. Anderson, of course, has a long history of saying things like, if you executed the homos like God recommends, you wouldn't have all, the, all this AIDS running rampant. He has also said the U.S. government should execute homosexuals by way of a firing squad because that's what the Bible commands. The Bible commands firing squad? Did they have guns back then? His statements have gotten him banned from 34 countries and counting. Jimenez is no different. After nearly 50 people died in the Pulse nightclub massacre, he said to his congregation that the real tragedy was that more of them didn't die. Yeah, this guy is really fucking horrific. Goodbye monetization. I feel like this is an important enough subject to just say what needs to be said, though. So back to JKH. He's watching these videos beginning in 2015. He buys into their hate speech. It's not just the anti-gay stuff, either. He's saying those IFB preachers are also anti-women. It's not IFB. IFB's bad enough. This is NIFB, New Independent Fundamentalist Baptist. This is a more extreme branch off of IFB. This group is very malicious and ugly and out for blood. It is a death cult. I do not say that lightly. It is one of the most extreme groups I have ever covered. I'll just leave it at that. It's one of the most extreme groups. I'll, I'll stick with that because I've covered some pretty extreme ones. Anyway, continuing on with what this says. Those NIFB preachers are also anti-women. They practice a form of complementarianism that leaves little room for women to have their own careers or much of a life outside the home. A wife's job is to obey her husband, end of story. JKH says that even if his religious views seem extreme, he doesn't personally promote violence. <laughs> Anderson and Jimenez would say the same thing. They want the government to execute gay people, but they insist they would never personally pull the trigger. Um, I think that they'd say that they would personally pull the trigger as long as that they were within the legal bounds. I think that they're trying to stay within legal bounds, if at all possible, but say the most horrific shit they can in the meantime. Tommy McMurtry said this. If you guys watch Mr. Atheist, you'll probably know these people, these names. Steven Anderson, Tommy McMurtry, Roger Jimenez, and others. You'll, you'll know these names. Tommy McMurtry famously said that gay people belong six feet under. He wants to put them where they belong. That kind of thing. That's the kind of rhetoric that you're dealing with. They barely border on the edges of legal 
speech. I don't know what the, the bounds are for free speech exactly or how it relates to this, but they operate right on the fringes of it, right on the edges of it. But I got to thinking to myself, like, law isn't the thing that determines morality. The two things are completely unconnected from each other, morality and law. I mean, law tries to follow morality if possible, but it doesn't. So my question to myself is... I know that right now, ostensibly, they're operating within the bounds of free speech. Morally speaking, is it right for them to talk about killing gay people or want to express an interest in killing gay people? And the answer is no, I don't think so. Now, it doesn't mean I think they should be jailed for it, but it does mean that I'm willing to take their platform away. A while back, Teal Swan was holding an event and I had the opportunity to deplatform her if I chose to. It was presented to me like, do you want to take part in this? Do you want to try to take her down? And I thought about it. And I decided, yes, I do want to see Teal Swan taken down. Not, I mean, just her rhetoric is harmful her beliefs are harmful she's toxic she's a cult leader i don't want her to have this leadership position but i decided not to deplatform her because she isn't actually actively talking about committing violent acts there is a line for me a moral line and it's a difficult line to find sometimes, but pretty much for me, the line is, are they actively talking about and promoting violence against a group of people? Teal Swan was not, at least at the time. The NIFB is, and has been, and will continue more than likely. So I have no moral qualms with deplatforming the NIFB. But I take deplatforming very seriously, and I don't just do that for anybody. Anyway, the point here is this group is very extreme, and I am willing to work against this group to the best of my ability. Anyway, let's continue reading here. In 2018, JKH and his wife AJH, a fellow Christian, decided to get separated in large part because of their religious differences. That's surprising. I think the NIFB takes divorce very, very seriously. She didn't buy into the hate speech. Okay, that's a plus. That left the question of how they would handle the religious decision-making when it comes to their three kids, ages 5, 4, and 2. That's rough. I could be wrong. I believe the NIFB is also part of the Quiverful movement, which basically, it's the same thing that the Duggars are part of. You guys know the Duggars, 18 Kids and Counting, that TV show. It, it's basically this religious movement where you're not supposed to ever use birth control. You just have kid after kid after kid, and not good. So I'm honestly surprised that they stopped at just three kids. Maybe they hadn't been married long enough for more than that. They could have been married for a solid five to six years if they did things just right. They could have been married for five to six years with three kids. AJH told the court she did not want JKH to have any say in their religion because she didn't want his hateful views influencing their children. That left the issue to the courts. Yesterday, Chilliwack Provincial Court Judge Kristen Mundstock, wow, what a name, Kristen Mundstock, handed down her decision. 
The mother would get to make all religious decisions for the kids, not out of religious discrimination against the father, but because the kids would become social outcasts if they adopted his views. And it's her job, according to Canadian law, to make these kinds of decisions solely in the best interest of the children. That's extremely fascinating. Um, I don't know that I agree with her reasoning on that, but I... I don't know. What a complicated situation. Here's a quote. The father's religious views are antisocial and will cause the children to be unable to get along with a large number of people. The children will find themselves in the same position socially as the father. The father was very clear in his testimony that his religious beliefs cause him to be unable to get along with a lot of people. For these reasons, I find it would not be in the best interest of the children for the father to make decisions respecting their religious and spiritual upbringing. She added that JKH would not get alone time with the kids either because he basically said if the kids were with him, he would preach his Christian hate to them, no matter what the court said. Instead, he'll get two hours a week with them in a, in a neutral location with the mother also present. That makes sense. Uh, this bit about not allowing him to be alone with them because he has expressed that he's going to violate court orders. If the other person expresses, I'm going to violate court orders, I, I see no issue with them limiting it to uh, unsupervised visitation. Let's continue reading here. All of this is the best possible outcome for the kids. They don't deserve to have their lives destroyed just because a Christian extremist wants to indoctrinate them to hate certain groups of people. It's not the responsibility of any court to get in the way of anyone practicing their religion. And that's not happening here since the father will get to spend as much time as he wants inside his Christian cult. But his kids aren't old enough to make that decision for themselves. They shouldn't be affected by his irresponsible and dangerous beliefs. Wow, man, this is complicated. This is really fucking complicated. I agree with the decision, but not the reasoning behind it. The reason the judge chose to not send the kids to the father and let him brainwash them is because she didn't want them to be social outcasts. Oh, that's rough. I don't think that that should have any bearing on the decision, the social outcast thing. Um, God, what a tough situation. All things considered, I'm glad things played out the way they did, but uh, I just wish that there were better reasons for it. I spent the day thinking about this. In retrospect, I've decided I strongly disagree with the judge's decision. This is absolutely, without a doubt, a death cult. And it's a violent and hateful one at that. But the social outcast thing is an unacceptable reason for barring him from teaching something to his kids. That reason could be used to prevent anybody from seeing their kids. What about an atheist parent? Teaching the kids about your lack of beliefs could be a reason to prevent the parent from seeing the kids. I agree that the parent has extremely dangerous and harmful beliefs. He's a member of a death cult. But we need to define why those beliefs are dangerous and harmful where others are not. The fear of the kids becoming social outcasts isn't good enough for me. When we come back, I'm going to talk about faith leaks suing Jehovah's Witnesses for leaking their videos. Give us 30 seconds. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. So 
the next article I wanted to take a look at is, again, by The Friendly Atheist. The title is, Jehovah's Witnesses Sue Owners of Faith Leaks for Posting 74 Convention Movies. Uh, this was written by Hemant Mehta on The Friendly Atheist website. So let me give you guys just a quick, short background of how this operates. So you have an idea of, like, kind of how these videos fit into Jehovah's Witnesses um, religion more generally. When I was a little kid, we would have these three conventions every year. We would have the special day assemblies one day on Sundays, and it's, what, 10 congregations maybe of Jehovah's Witnesses all get together, about 500 people get together in an arena, and we have a little convention where there are baptisms and eight hours of talks of actual sermons up on the podium and hanging out with people from neighboring congregations and things like that. Then we'd have the circuit assembly, which was two days, Saturday and Sunday. There, were, again, would be baptisms. There would be eight hours per day of sermons, hanging out with fellow Jehovah's Witnesses. But I believe on Saturday, we would have the baptisms, and on Sunday, we'd have something called the drama. Bear in mind, this was 15 years ago when I was a little kid, basically, in the religion. Then we had a, another assembly called the District Assembly. It was probably 10,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them in a tri-state area. It would be three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On Saturday, we'd have the baptisms. On Sunday, we would have the drama. The drama is basically pre-recorded script created by the Watchtower Society, by the governing body, to deliver a very specific message. And these actors, quote-unquote, would get on the stage in front of these 10,000 people or 5,000, however many, and they would kind of act along with the pre-recorded script. It would be like a play. It'd be kind of like a play. I guess you could say it was a play. And it would basically just be acting out Bible scenes or whatever else. Or, or sometimes they'd act out tough situations Jehovah's Witnesses find themselves in. Like, you know, getting bullied at school for being a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. Uh, Feel-good messages, that kind of thing. So... After I left Jehovah's Witnesses, I've come to hear that they kind of replaced the dramas with videos. They play videos at these conventions. And we've played some of the videos on my channel before, actually. The bunker videos, if you guys have been watching my channel for a while, you'll know the bunker videos. They played those at, I think, 2016 or 2017 convention of Jehovah's Witnesses. So... Faith Leaks got a hold of 74 convention videos that Jehovah's Witnesses were going to be playing at their conventions. And I guess Jehovah's Witnesses didn't like that they released them to the public. So let's give this article a read and see what it says about it. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania, which oversees the Jehovah's Witnesses, is suing the Truth and Transparency Foundation and its founders, Ryan C. McKnight and Ethan G. Dodge, alleging copyright infringement. Of course. That's the only angle they can come at it from. The witnesses say they created 74 original motion pictures and have copyrights on them, but those movies were obtained and uploaded to faithleaks.org, a place where whistleblowers can anonymously submit material. The Truth and Transparency Foundation, run by the same people, then took that material, researched it, and published an investigative piece on the matter. All the movies came from the religious organization's annual convention, so the argument could be made that there was news value to reposting what JW believers around the world were being taught. Dodge explained that rationale this way. Before their removal, the videos 
received much analysis from ex-witnesses on various forums across the internet. Redditing, again, who published their own lengthy analysis of one video, argues that the videos simply deserve to be made public for the sake of criticism. Jehovah's Witnesses have thrived on controlling their own narrative for many years, discouraging outside research and discussion, said Redditing again which is a username, I guess. He further stated that, while a speaker's ideas could be dismissed as personal thoughts, the videos are known by attendees to be directly from the organization. Further, by making these videos publicly available, opportunities given for open and unbiased discussion and criticism. 100% agree. Absolutely agree. This stuff needs to be public and needs to be uh, able to be criticized. I covered veganism on my main channel forever ago. It got picked up by a bunch of vegans and just trashed and torn apart and people called me all kinds of names. Uh, did I go after them for copyright infringement? No, I don't give a shit. Let them take my video and chop it up and talk about it. That's 100% fine with me. Even if they're talking mad shit about me, that is really okay with me. I'm not going to try to go after anybody. I'm not going to be upset that anyone uses my words in a, one of their videos or uses one of my clips or whatever. Go nuts within the legal bounds of the law. That is really fine with me. I believe in the free flow of information. I have an Etsy store where I, I've designed 3D models of like retro game stands and stuff like that, and I sell them on my Etsy store, and that's how I live, like by, by selling these stands. I have put the stands models up for download for free on basically a 3D modeling website thingiverse because I believe in the free flow of information. Even to my own detriment, no matter what, I think information should be free and widely available. I don't think it should be behind paywalls. I don't think I don't believe in any, any of this copyright infringement bullshit that Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to pull right now. Uh, there is such a thing as copyright infringement, and I feel like Jehovah's Witnesses are using it as a weapon in a, in a dishonest way. Uh, let me continue reading here. In other words, this was fair game. The Watchtower Society disagrees. According to their lawsuit, McKnight and Dodge personally participated in and supervised and directed the infringing acts described above. Indeed, they personally conceived of and directed and approved all key aspects of TFFs, I'm sorry, TTFs infringing activities. They were the moving force behind those infringing acts. What a bunch of bullshit, man. If you're too afraid of people talking about what you're saying, then don't fucking say it. People are going to talk about what you're saying whether you like it or not. I'm sorry, that's just what it is. While no specific cost is listed in the lawsuit, it says the, the witnesses want costs and attorney's fees for each video. Oh, wow even the ones with no real content. It also says, almost comically, that Watchtower had suffered and will continue to suffer irreparable injury, not fully com compensable in monetary damages, and is therefore entitled to an injunction enjoining defendants from engaging in their infringing activities. They're just using copyright law as a weapon against people right now. That is it. I've never had an issue with it when somebody talks mad shit about me and uses clips from my videos to do it. They are perfectly within their legal rights to do that. If you can't take the heat, then don't dish it out as far as I'm concerned. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses are apparently suffering because more people may have had a chance to watch their propaganda films. The irony clearly escapes them. If the videos are out there at all, the group wants people to watch them on the Witnesses' own website where they can be seen without any kind of criticism or context. Considering TTF doesn't make any money from the videos and that believers who want to see the films aren't about to see them at Faith Leaks, choosing instead to go through JW channels, I'm not sure how strong this case is. But if a judge says the videos must come down, the witnesses will be able to shield the public from seeing what believers are exposed to at a major event. That would be devastating. This is a really unique situation because most of the time when there's a copyright infringement thing, copyright infringement lawsuits are pressed because somebody is making money off of copyrighted material. But Faith Leaks didn't make a dime off of this. They just made it available. That's it. That's probably my guess why Jehovah's Witnesses didn't list monetary value in what they were suing for. They said they suffer and they continue to suffer irreparably and they want attorney's fees. They didn't specify how they suffered or any of that other stuff. Like if I infringed copyright, say I used a song in my videos for like every single video that I've ever made since day one and I stole that song, and it was copyrighted, and I never paid a dime to the person. The artist could, if it had been copyrighted that whole time, sue me for the value that they would have gotten had I signed a contract with them or something like that. For example, that's kind of how the cases play out sometimes, not always. But that's most likely why Jehovah's Witnesses didn't list a monetary value. That would be my guess. Let's continue reading. For what it's worth, TTF's methods have been effective. In 2018, for example, leaked documents revealed how the Witnesses were mishandling CSA. The difference is that we're no longer talking about leaked documents but propaganda films, and the content was uploaded by the owners themselves. It didn't fall in their lap. McKnight didn't respond to a request for comment last night. Jehovah's Witnesses are just using these fear tactics once again to go after people and try to ruin them, try to bring them down, try to scare them into silence. They historically have not really gone down this road. Historically, it's been Scientology taking these steps to try to intimidate people, but I guess Jehovah's Witnesses are learning from the best and implementing some of those tactics themselves. Tell you what, let's take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Kenneth Copeland declaring the pandemic over for good again. Give us 30 seconds and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. So the next article I wanted to talk about is about Kenneth Copeland basically declaring the pandemic over for good. And, okay, so I think he's done this three times total now. We covered the third one last week. This is the second time he did it. We haven't covered the first time he did it yet. We may end up doing that next week, but this is by The Independent. 
So let's give this article a read and see what it says. American televangelist Kenneth Copeland, who recently claimed that the coronavirus pandemic will be over much sooner than you think, because Christian people all over this country praying have overwhelmed it, has summoned the wind of God to destroy the novel coronavirus during a recent sermon. Before blowing at the camera, he said, I blow the wind of God on you. You are destroyed forever, and you'll never be back. Thank you, God. Let it happen. Cause it to happen. This guy is really strange. I said this on Twitter recently. If I believed that Satan was real, I would believe that this guy was Satan incarnate. Like, this guy is very, very bizarre. Just his mannerisms, his facial features, everything about him is fucking weird. Let's continue reading. In a sermon last month, the pastor executed judgment on COVID-19, which he declared finished and over, and made the U.S. healed and well again. He also demanded a vaccination to come immediately. His Texas-based Kenneth Copeland Ministries megachurch previously has claimed that viewers of his show can be healed of the virus by touching their screens, and he has urged viewers to continue paying tithes despite losing their jobs amid unprecedented unemployment claims within the last several weeks. He also has compared the virus to the flu and suggested people who attended his services could be healed in person. Oh my god. This is a quote. If we have to pass out thermometers, if we find one with a fever, let's get him healed right there, he said. What do you do if you get it? Big deal. He does not understand the seriousness of this situation. One one thing I want to make note of here before we continue on, he says, if we have to pass out thermometers, if we find one with a fever. Fever is not a guaranteed symptom. A lot of people are asymptomatic. A lot of people don't have fevers at all from this. You can't tell if somebody has this or not based on whether or not they have a fever. The pastor who supports Donald Trump, didn't know that, also argued to his followers that the president's opponents had opened the door for the virus with their displays of hate against him. (laughs) Oh my God. Several other prominent evangelical leaders in the Christian right who rely on miraculous healing in their ministries also have denied the pandemic in addresses to their followers. Florida Pentecostal pastor Rodney Howard Brown held several services in packed churches despite warnings from health officials and doctors to avoid large gatherings to prevent spreading the disease, which he called a phantom plague, before his arrest for violating social distancing rules. Glad he got arrested for that. Roy Moore, who launched a failed bid endorsed by the president for a Senate seat in Alabama, has defended Louisiana Pastor Tony Spell after he was charged for continually shunning a statewide ban on large gatherings. I remember Roy Moore, and I remember that whole mess when he was trying to get elected. Glad he lost. Mr. Moore told his followers it's their duty to continue attending church services despite the pandemic. I swear he wants to get people killed. I swear he wants to get people killed. There's a uh, a tweet from somebody named Brandon Kimber here, and it's got the video on it. The tweet says, Copeland declares the wind of God to blow to destroy COVID-19. He then says it doesn't have to be a fast wind. Then the Lord tells him it's even better if there's no wind at all. <laughs> Let's watch the clip and see what it see what what's happening here. I blow, I blow the wind of God. The wind of God. 
on you. On you. You are destroyed forever. You are you destroyed forever. And you'll never be back. And you'll, and you'll never, never be back. Thank you, our God. Thank, Thank you, our God. God. Let it happen. Let it happen. Let it Cause it to happen. Cause it to happen. The wind of God. A strong, it doesn't have to be a fast wind. Didn't say anything about it being blowing over 40 miles an hour. Don't have to. Just hot. Hey, we know what hot is in Texas. <laughs> this thing is going to hit in New Orleans. Well, I'm telling you, it gets hot down there. I mean, like Jesse says, it's Africa hot down there, man. Because it's, it's right there on the coast. It gets muggy. And that's what it takes to kill this thing. Uh, it hates heat. It hates humidity. It hates water. It just dies. Now, let me just pause there for a second. What the guy's saying here is actually inaccurate. He's saying that humidity and heat kill it. That's partially true, but not entirely. It slows it down. It does not kill it. So right now, what we're in the middle of is a worldwide pandemic. That's what we're dealing with at this immediate moment, right? That means it's in hundreds of countries. I think there are like 196 countries, or there were last I checked, or 192, somewhere in there. I think it's in like 180-something countries right now. It's like all over the world, right? There are all kinds of climates across the world. In Africa, New Zealand, the United States, China, South Korea, Greenland, Iceland, all of those other places, they're all dealing with this too. And they all have different climates. So yeah, humidity and heat do slow it down, but they don't stop it. Everybody's dealing with this right now, no matter how humid or hot it is. So his hope that humidity and heat are going to end it and we're just going to go back to normal, is absolutely absurd. That's completely absurd. That's not going to happen. Anyway, let's continue uh, listening. We've got about a minute of it uh, remaining. Burn. Burn. The wind. It's even better. I just heard the Lord say this because I've witnessed it. <laughs> it's even better if there's no wind at all. Because I want to tell you, yeah, you a California boy, you don't know much about this. But son, you ain't never seen hot until it gets hot in Texas and it gets muggy down there in Houston and in New Orleans. And it gets, oh God, oh God, I can't even go outside. That's good. Stay in the house. Turn on the air conditioner and watch that demon die. Watch it die right in front of you. That was extremely disturbing. The guy is like, I don't know. I, I don't know if this guy, I don't know the guy's like, life story. I don't know his history. I wish that I could read a book about his life to kind of understand where he's coming from because it's like he acts 
in such a strange, unusual, bizarre way that I feel like he's completely separated from real life, like real society. He doesn't know what normal people act like. When people make jokes about him being a lizard person, doesn't really understand like how to be a human or whatever. And and I, I can definitely understand that. Of course, he is a human. He's not a lizard person. It's just a joke. But I get the joke. Like, I get where they're coming from with that joke. It's like he's been so separated from society, he just doesn't understand how to act like a human. I was just talking to my friend about this earlier, about Michael Jackson, and how strange Michael Jackson was. Like, the guy is just really weird, really odd, really bizarre, doesn't act normal, doesn't act like a normal human. And I feel like that can be explained by the fact that Michael Jackson grew up Jehovah's Witness. And... He grew up famous. So I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and I I was missing something. They took something from me. They robbed me of something fundamental. They, they robbed me of some personality trait that every other person out there has that I just don't and never will because I didn't grow up normal. The same thing happened to Michael Jackson, except it was exacerbated with him because he grew up famous also. So he was largely separated from society for two different reasons. He was famous and he was a Jehovah's Witness. And I feel like that explains Michael Jackson's really strange behavior throughout his whole life. And I feel like that explains Kenneth Copeland's strange behavior. I think his separation from society is his own choice now. Like I said, I don't know what his life was before he was a famous preacher. Maybe he was separated from society when he was a kid also. But I just don't think he knows what normal society is like, what normal humans act like, and he's got this little posse of yes-men all over, all around him, basically backing him up, his his hype men. I think Hemant Mehta calls them his hype men, and I think that's a pretty on-point term for them. It, it's just really sad. It's an extremely sad situation that the guy is so disconnected from reality, because in many ways I can relate with that. Uh, doesn't excuse the bad decisions... The fucked up things he's said and done. Does not excuse that stuff. Bottom line. Let's take a look at some super chats. Everything is loading very slowly. Drives me absolutely goddamn fucking batty. The slowness at which it loads. Okay, Zolfner. I'm driving a word. I'm driving a word. I feel like I I missed something. I wish I'd read that earlier. 903. It, It was right when the podcast started. Were you actually saying, I'm driving a word? Like, I'm a driving asshole? I don't know. We have little faith. Take a shot every time Owen says, interesting. Interesting. (laughs) The Gatheus, you should do a series on the CES letter where you explain each part in detail. That would be awesome. That would be really awesome. Uh, I don't know how interesting it is, though. I, I feel like it's boring to people. It's extremely fascinating to me, the CES letter is, but I feel like it's boring to other people. Is NIFB racist? I don't know 
enough to say that definitively it's within their doctrine. Uh, Jacob Palermo, thank you for the super chat on that. I don't know well enough to say if it's a definitive part of their doctrine, but I would venture to guess that they are, they lean closer to the white supremacist end of the spectrum, if that makes sense. I wouldn't be at all surprised to learn that the vast majority of their members are white supremacists. They're, that's the type of people they hang around, so. Zolfner, I finally can grace you with my alcohol, Taco Bell, and my drunk attention. How's quarantine? I was trying to do it in the hills. I just got home. Dude, honestly, the fact that you just said Taco Bell makes me want to go get Taco Bell, and I really shouldn't go get Taco Bell because it's really late, but I really want Taco Bell, so I'm thinking about going and getting some Taco Bell. I don't know. It's on my mind right now. <laughs> Thanks for the super chat. Lucifer LaFleur. I was raised Jehovah's Witness. I remember watching one of your older videos a long time ago, being shocked at your bitter apostate lies. I even prayed for you. Now I'm giving you money to keep it up. Thank you. That's awesome, man. I love it. That is fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. Oh, man. That's awesome shit. Uh, thank you for that. I'm so glad that you found your way out and that you were like praying for me and everything. That's like a success story right there. So thank you. I, I, I absolutely love it. Zolfner, Kenneth Copeland is a national treasure. No, he's a piece of shit, man. What are you talking about? Kenneth Copeland is a nutcase, dude. He is a total nutcase. All right, guys, I'll tell you what. That's where I'm going to end it for the night. Thank you guys for coming, and I will talk to you next week. If you like what I do and you want to make sure I can continue to do it, you can support me in a few ways. First, you can support me on Patreon. That's probably the best way. But if you want to get something back for your support, you can check out my Teespring. I sell all kinds of shirts and stickers and stuff on there. Second, you can support me by checking out my Etsy store. I sell 3D printed stands for every system from the original Nintendo to the Xbox One. And finally, if you want to support me in other ways, you can check me out on my other channels. I have the podcast channel, which is where I talk about whatever's on my mind. Politics, social issues, Choose whatever. You can also find it everywhere podcasts can be found. Or you can check out the videos on my main channel where I focus on destructive cults. As it is with most channels these days, I rely on the support of viewers like you to keep my channel alive, so sharing my work is extremely helpful. Anyways, check me out in all those places if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, guys.